Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland, of course. Now, we were just remarking on, before we came to air, on how how, it's, how cold it's turned. And our guest um, was re- remarking on how chilly it is, where she is. So, James, who are we talking to today? Well, we're talking to Autumn Hendrickson, uh, all the way across the Herring Pond. Um, and uh, Autumn is you're, you're in Massachusetts aren't you Autumn? Yes I am yeah. You're in Reading itself? Yes. <laughs> and, and so she is from Reading Massachusetts and she's working on a book about the boys and the men and women in fact who served in the war from uh, during during World War Two, Second World War as we call it over here <laughs> and um, uh, and also this is a this is a really interesting project isn't it because you're you're looking at these these citizen forces who suddenly find themselves caught up in the Second World War and you're using one town presumably as a kind of sort of microcosm for the bigger picture yeah it's it's really interesting um, in that particular way too because um, as I started this research, I found that actually Reading has a really good representation of pretty much every type of unit you could think of, from Merrill's Marauders to the first Special Service Force. Um, so it's it's actually a really diverse, like little town um, when you look at where these men all went, and even where the women went. Some of them went to places that were of particular interest and. In, not exactly common for um, the average whack or wasp um, of World War Two, and this is different to say um, a, a British equivalent might be you know you pick Durham or somewhere and then you've got the the Durham Light yes. Infantry the DLI and you look at you you go through a sort of county regiment you know the British British model. You could you could do that with with the British equivalent, but you've, you're 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 not doing that. You're just focused on the place and, and and who goes where from there. Yes, and it is interesting because um, we do have a little bit of that with the National Guard um, and Reading, Massachusetts National Guard. Our our guard went um, to the 182nd Infantry Regiment that became a part of the 23rd Americal Infantry Division. So we do uh, have yes. a lot and of those boys. Um, all out on the Pacific side of things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they they were, and many of them were all in the same companies, the same like three companies. Although by the wow. e- end of the war, a lot of them were all over the place um, and different and different units. And actually nowadays, a lot of people consider World War II as the last time that people from the same town served in like divisions like the 23rd yeah, yeah. um you know so it, that is kind of interesting because there's a part of that but most of it isn't most of it most of what i do exists outside of that structure so so awesome I'm, I'm quite keen to sort of rewind a little bit can you first of all can, can you tell me about a um uh reading massachusetts yeah. kind of how big is it where is it exactly in massachusetts what kind of town is it where what you know what was it built up around yeah and secondly how come you got so obsessed and afflicted <laughs> by the world war Two? <laughs> yeah um so uh sure so reading massachusetts is about 30 minutes north of boston 
Um, it was incorporated in 1644. Uh, and interestingly, they had their big 300th anniversary during the invasion of Normandy. <laughs> um, uh, and um, the town itself was a farming area for a very long time. <laughs> and then uh, as we got into the kind of industrial revolution and it, it reached Reading, um, Reading became a mishmash of lots of different industries. In right. fact, during the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, about 70% of Readingites were making shoes in their homes. Um, they were like, you know, yeah, so it was it was a lot of different things. Um, there was an organ factory in, um, in Reading for a brief period of time. Um, I believe there were a few different clock manufacturers. Um, Lots of like what I think we would consider fine skills, like things like very, very right. particular. Um, now, I believe roughly the population of Reading sits around 23,000 people, but I believe it's on the rise. Um, during the war, okay, so that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a pretty I, I, small I, town, isn't it, really? I mean, particularly by US standards. Yeah. And you're from, you're from yeah, Reading. Yeah, so right? I've lived in Reading. It's interesting. I didn't spend the first 10 years of my life in Reading. I spent two of the first 10 years of my life in Reading. And then I came back when I was in fifth grade. So I was about 10 years old. So I've been here for about 10 years now. Um, and I guess that kind of ties into the other question about... So does, but, but, so does your surname, is your surname indicative of the sort of people that, that emigrated, that, that moved to Reading? Is it no. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I was adopted. So my last name, right. oh, okay. my last name Hendrickson comes from my adoptive dad, um, whose family came to Long Island in, in New York. And but the rest of my family, because I kind of got into all this by doing genealogy. A lot of my family lived in the surrounding area, but I actually mm. don't have any direct um, like ancestors that ever lived in Reading. Right. Right. Okay. But so, so it's not one of those places in America that's Scandinavian or German no, or predominantly, no. you know. No. No. Right. Okay. It's a okay. mishmash. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. Which, which okay. leads on neatly to the next bit, which is, so how come you started getting obsessed with World War Two and wanting to know <laughs> what the good folk of Reading had done during that conflict? Um. So interestingly, I think I mentioned I got into history through genealogy. Um, because I was adopted, my, you know, kind of relationship to my past was different than I think it is for most people. So I started to kind of do my genealogy and I found that really compelling. At first, I was really into World War One because I ended up finding that my family shed most of their blood in the First World War. One of my cousins was um, died of the Spanish flu exactly a month before the war ended aboard the USS Bridgeport. And I remember being particularly struck by that because he, his wife had just had their only child and he never knew he was dead by the time, you right. know, um, my, my, my great uncle, great, great uncle, um, Carrie Judson Tupper was killed at the Battle of Montsorel fighting with the Canadians uh, in the First wow. World War. And one of my more distant, but more direct cousins, uh, was the commanding officer of the Nova Scotia Highlanders that took Vimy Ridge. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. definitely for me, World War One was my thing. Um, but 
when I go to school and when I would kind of sit in a history class, a lot of people would say, oh, my grandpa was in World War II or, oh, my, you know, like my uncle, my great uncle or, or, you know, all these and all these people, World War II, World War II, World War II. To me, I was like, I don't know. Like, I find it interesting. I find it compelling. I can kind of feel it, but I still feel distant from it. Um, and so my senior year of high school, I took an elective um, at school because I wanted to take a history class and I took World War II European theater. I loved the class. I didn't remember a whole lot from it, but I definitely got like a emotional connection through it because that's kind of how I work. Um, now going into kind of the end of my senior year, that's when COVID hit um, and I got a job offer to write for the Reading Post, which is a local paper over the summer. Um, and I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to write about because it was COVID summer. <laughs> no one was doing anything. Um, and so I got this idea. It's kind of one of those ideas that I get sometimes where I'm like, this is a cool idea. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm like, why don't I, maybe I could take people back in time. You know, like I, you know, people like World War II. People think it's interesting. People don't feel too distant from it. Um, in, in a lot, like a lot of ways. And so I was like, well, what if I wrote about like Reading during the summer of 43 or 44? Um, so I sat myself down with um, a box of goldfish, Ken Burns's documentary, The War, and draft cards on Ancestry. And I started going through and I was like, I'm not going to find anything. I'm not going to find anything. And I did. I found a lot. <laughs> um, and I started to notice the addresses and how this was like a kid who I could walk to his house and I could stand in front That's of That's amazing. Him. Yeah, and to me... So you've got that kind of wonderful immediacy, haven't you? Yeah. That connection. Yeah. You've got a connection immediately because you know the house where this yeah. guy was growing up yeah. and stuff. And it, I mean, I think, well, that's quite powerful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially because um, Reading became a really uh, like special place to me. Because I grew up in like a kind of cookie cutter town in Florida where, when I was younger. So I was used to kind of like a cookie cutter town. Like it wasn't, there was nothing particularly unique. So when I came here and you see all the houses and they're all like so different from each other and you see all like the rocks and the, you know, everything. So have you different. got quite a little bit of sort of, you know, uh, colonial architecture and, yeah. and brick yeah. and... and <laughs> all that kind of stuff that you expect in New England. Right. And and there's like a sense of, there's really a sense of um, home here for me that I, I don't think I was also, I was too young, I think, to develop that when I was in Florida f for various reasons. But now that I'm here, this really felt like home. I felt safe. I felt, I felt like all those things that I think you start to feel capable of feeling once you get to a certain level of like self-awareness as you get older. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so so in researching this, I mean, are you finding that this isn't basically an endless onion that you'll never ever peel <laughs> yes, completely? Um, I still remember. Actually, I have for the longest time. I was like, I think I know all the paratroopers from Reading. Like, I think I found them all. Um, and then, like <laughs> at the anniversary of D Day, this like this past summer, um, I got a text from someone a picture that someone had shared on a local Facebook page with a, you know, the photo of Eisenhower talking to the paratroopers. Yeah. And there was, 101st yeah. Guys, and yeah. there was a, someone thought that one of the guys in the picture was from Reading. 
It turns out I, I came to the conclusion that he, he wasn't actually in the picture, but that he was, yes, a member of the 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment. And yes, he was severely wounded during. The, and I was like, what, where did this guy come from? How did he how did he slip through the cracks? That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, so tell me, so are there, are there any veterans left? Are they still uh, any still alive from Reading or have they all gone? Um, I would say that, to my knowledge, there are a few left. They don't really talk. Um, and I think at this point they would probably know who I am. Um, so if they don't want to talk... And they haven't come forward. They ha- yeah, That's you know. Yeah. I've talked And what about letters and diaries and things? I actually am very lucky uh, in that regard. I have a series... I only have one like complete collection of letters that I'm borrowing um, so the person who I'm borrowing these from, if you hear this, tr- I remember they're yours. Um, um, but I have a collection of letters that a guy from town uh, a name, by the name of Albert Tarpin, he wrote home every day for the entire time he was overseas. And I have wow. all of those letters. Um, and it's he served with the uh, motor pool of um, the... One of the inf- uh, field artillery, excuse me, battalions right. of the 30th Infantry Division, um, Old wow. Hickory. So, yeah, yeah. So he Amazing. saw a lot. Well, that must be an in- that must be an incredible record, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> obviously, in a, in a letter, there's so much you can't say. Yeah. But there's enough of the kind of inconsequentials, and I mean, I don't know about if, if you found this autumn, but whenever I'm looking at kind of um, a, a, a raft of wartime letters, one thing that does come across is a personality. Very yeah. clearly, you you really can see what they're like and what kind of person they were, and 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 you're, you're kind of sort of putting flesh back onto bones of someone who's who might be long long gone, right? But but who is living and breathing from the page that you're reading, and I, you know that's in, that's incredibly um, kind of emotive, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it's special too because you get to see what their favorite like catchphrases were and kind of how they how they interacted with their family. Like this particular man, Al Al Tarpin, he. He always wanted to know what was going on with his brothers. Always. He always wanted to know. And he was also very affectionately, like he would talk to, when he would write to his um, his mother especially, he would talk about, you know, how's the business going back home? You know, like, hey, did you get the money I sent? You know, and he would like, he would take the time to, to explain how like, how the money being sent home would work and how the allotments would work to his family, which I thought was very endearing. Um, but <laughs> very, yeah, yeah. We need to take a break right now. We'll be back in a second with Autumn Hendrickson. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. We're talking to Autumn Hendrickson about the boys from Reading. So we talked about the, we talked about the blokes, but what about what about the girls of, of, of Reading? So, so you're saying that it's, it's men and women of Reading. Yeah, so obviously um, there are not as many of them, primarily because their records are not as easy to find. Um, I Why is that, do you think? I think it's there's I think there's a lot of reasons why I think the first one is because the United States government, I don't think ever really fully anticipated the role that women would take. So I don't think that they kept as many books on it. Um, Right. And and you also have to remember that a lot of times the women were the ones keeping the books for the men. So you have to like, you know, that's another part. Like, who's going to who's going to keep the books for them if they're keeping the books for someone else? Um, But the women that I have found, um, there were there are so many of them. And um, one of my favorite ones, though, is Myrtle Harris, who was a lieutenant junior grade in the United States Navy. uh, And she was a nurse Um, and she wrote many vivid letters home uh, that I found in the newspaper about. Um, the Pacific and and kind of being in Japan in the aftermath of the atomic bombs. Um, And she wrote about a a lot of like the things that she saw and how they made her feel. Um, And I think that you don't get that a lot from the men's letters. Like I would see them sometimes like in bits and pieces, but I, I think the men were more reluctant in their letters to talk about how they were feeling um, Myrtle was much more emotive um, than than some of the men that I you know whose letters I've seen, but she she was also um, she outranked her her little brother, which I loved. Um, <laughs> her little brother, was, I believe, he was in the Army Air Corps and he was a ground crewman, so he wasn't an officer. Um, but there's his sister um, as a lieutenant junior grade. Um, so, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the men are more. The men seem to be more buttoned up. Then, it, 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 yeah. Is that how you describe it? I would it? say that in in most cases, yeah. I would say like seventy five percent of the time, yeah. Um, there's yeah. definitely that twenty five percent that, like, in some letters home, you would see, you would like see a implication of a feeling um and sometimes it was very vivid and other times it was like almost like oh my god 
like he, this guy wrote home in a letter and said his plane blew up and then went right back like to talking about the food like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's my experience too. They they veer all over the place when they're talking about stuff, and it's almost as though they're talking about something that's really uncomfortable. So then they go back to something which is a bit more comforting. Yeah, which is that time that kind of you know Charlie shot a cow or whatever it might be, or you know you know someone who you know produced some sort of disgusting K rations or, 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 or whatever. Yeah, you know, and and they, and they do they always do veer all over the place. I mean that that's a thing. I mean what. What I kind of noticed was a sort of general pattern, which is that that not a general pattern, but a general pattern. General pattern. A yeah. general pattern, which is that that you know after the war everyone comes home, you know they're all in the same boat. Everyone's been involved in it, so no one talks about it mm. because you want to put it to one side. And you know you get on with life, you get married, have kids, get on with work. Yeah. Um, kids don't want to hear about it because they're bored of hearing about the war. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, and that's always a reference point when it comes to discipline. You know. You talk to me like that. If I talked like that to, to, to my sergeant in the war, you know, God, out of out of hiding. Oh God, you know, not the war again. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then 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 they're kind of busy with life. And then it's not until kind of after retirement yeah. that suddenly they get a letter and it's like, you know, we're having a bit of a reunion with with kind of you know Charlie Company or you know on, you know, whatever it is, you know, USS yeah. O'Brien um, and and you know what's his name, um, your your chap. Um, Nichols, Nichols um, yeah. goes along to it or whatever. Yes. Um, so you know, you, you, and then they sort of go, God, actually, you know, it's really good to kind of see the old guys and kind of reminisce, and it's um, a bit like a high school reunion or something. And then, and then some people will open up and they'll talk about it, and suddenly they've got grandchildren, and the grandchildren go, "What are you doing in the in the war, grandpops?" and all that kind of stuff, yeah. and, and off you go. Uh, and, and then there's others who suddenly realize, you know, it's quite a few, I think, who've got to sort of ninety. Yeah. And realise they're the last one in their battalion, stroke yeah. ship, stroke field regiment, yeah. whatever, tank crew, whatever, mm-hmm. bomber crew. And so you think, God, actually, I've got a little bit of a kind of duty of duty to mm-hmm. kind of talk about this stuff and going to schools and, and, and what have you. But but you can understand why it's not till kind of later on in life that, that, you know, people talk about it. But of course, you know, when you think of the millions of people that were involved in the Second World War. Yeah. You know, ninety-eight percent of them never breathe a word, or ninety-five percent never breathe a word, and you just, you just, you know, to to now, it just feels so painful when I think about, you know, all the missed opportunities and people I didn't speak to when I had the opportunity, and you know, I had a guy today just email me saying, oh, you know, just made me realise I wish I'd talked to people while I had the chance, and it's like, wow, yeah, yeah, you and me the same, you know, and I've I've done over three hundred interviews with with second world war veterans i think something like that and and that, that, that still feels like i didn't do enough yeah um it's only anything so anyway so, so tell me about bernard nichols then oh bernard nichols so um there is they're a family um so bernard nichols and i'll pull up his stuff in front of me but um he so he joined the navy uh at a very young age uh, i mean if you think um 1918 and he enlisted in 37 so he would have been let's see about 2019 um and he enlisted in 1937 like that's that's something like um this is before yeah. before you know war is really obvious um you know, and, and I often wish that these men weren't dead because I would like to ask them. I would like to ask Bernard. I said, did you know that there was going to be a war on the horizon or did you just see an opportunity and take it? Um, and he, yeah, so he was um, a storekeeper, first class. Um, yeah. And so a storekeeper's job was pretty much what it sounds like. Um, they were in charge of the ship's store um, and their combat jobs 
could vary widely. Um, usually they were like the same kind of job as the mess men where they would bring ammunition out um, if there was general quarters, if they went to general quarters. So he started off his career on the USS Dixie. Um, there wasn't much of note for that, that particular ship. Um, she was a destroyer tender, so... Um, and then destroyer tenders, for those that don't know, are just they kind of hang around destroyers and help repair them and make sure they're in tip top. Um, he didn't stay on her for very long. Um, he was he was on her before um, the U.S. entered the war for a decent period of time. But before the U.S. entered the war, the Dixie wasn't doing much. Um, right. And then he was transferred to the USS O'Brien, um, which. You know, it's a very particular boat, um, and it was sunk. Um, and it's really interesting uh, because the boat itself, um, she stayed afloat for quite a while after she was hit. I believe she was struck by um, a few torpedoes. Um, and I know that there's a photo of the USS O'Brien, and I'm blanking on if I, I think I must have forgotten to put it in his file, but... Um, there's a photo of the USS O'Brien as they tried to get her kind of away and like safe. And the whole bottom of her, you know, bow is gone. Just gone. Yeah. Um, she went down while she was a screening ship for, for reference. She was screening, um, I believe, the, the, the carriers that were off Guadalcanal um, and the, the troop transports and the... Just all of the larger capital ships. Um, and she made it pretty far um, while she was, you know, severely damaged. Um, and I believe it, it took a while for her to actually sink. I don't recall how long it was, but um, it was very sudden once it did happen. Like her bottom split completely open just out of nowhere. I mean, I've just, I've just gone online and found the photo. It's quite extraordinary. Yes. It's like it's had, it's like she's had an enormous bite taken out. I of know. Her. Yeah. Like, 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 a, like by a shark. I mean, like the, the, a big bite taken yes. out of her bow. It's quite, quite incredible. I mean, they can stay afloat yeah. a bit, can't they? Because they've got these bulkheads. You know, they're all done in sections, aren't they? So that, that's why. But, but I suppose you know the damage so bad, and maybe just the, the the back breaks. But the interesting thing about about him is, is he's also got a brother, hasn't he? And he's the guy in the Americal division. Yes. He so, ends up on Guadalcanal. Yeah, so Harry Norman uh, Nichols um, ends up on, on Guadalcanal, yeah. And um, Harry is a really... Uh, I'm very fortunate to be in touch with a relative of Harry's. Um, so I, you know, I have some of that, like, firsthand. Like, I've heard the stories that this man heard. Um, but Harry was interesting, too, because he's actually Bernard's older brother, um, by two years. So, um, it's kind of funny. I kind of wonder what the dynamic was like if Harry, you know, like seeing his little brother take the initiative in 1937 and go and join the Navy. And there he is as a member of the National Guard. Um, but yeah, so Harry himself, though, he was inducted into the National Guard when, uh, from the National Guard into the Army when Massachusetts federalized her troops on January 16th of 1941. Um, and he, he went and it's, it's not clear to me quite yet what particular company he served with, with the 182nd Infantry Regiment, but, um, it was probably E Company, um, 
uh, because that was the company that many of the Reading men ended up in. And um, fun fact about E Company, it was actually also their medical detachment. So they had riflemen and medics serving together and also sometimes switching roles where a medic would pick up a rifle and a rifleman would pick up the medic bag. <laughs> um, it is very interesting. Um, and yeah, he was the one who wrote uh, that poem um, for our country, uh, which he wrote on Guadalcanal um, in January of 43. I can read it if you would like. Yes, please do. Please do. Yeah, yeah. As we lay in the mud on Christmas Eve, out of the dampness with the whispering breeze, the crickety crack of the twigs and the brush, the sound of strange insects, the birds as they rush, oh, so close to the front. Through the still of the night, each walks his post with thoughts of his loved ones back home on the coast. One suddenly burst forth with a deafening roar, all hell lets loose on the front once more. But this is not hell, just the front. Every field piece and mortar throwing bombs and shells, the rat-a-tat of machine guns, the bells. We all know this means the condition is red, and the bombs from the planes will soon scatter our dead. This is the life at the front. The fear we have, no one will know, for we never admit it, just forward we go. We are fighting for freedom and our return to the States, and proud we are of all our country's fate. So we all carry on at the front. We've been gone for a year now. We hope not in vain. For the hardships and sufferings and even the pains, we all take this for our country so true, and we'll always protect our red, white, and blue. May it wave forever, our flag at the front. Private Harry mm. Nichols. That's very Gosh. good, isn't it? Yeah. It's very it's good. Very it's good. very evocative. And do we know what happened to Harry? So Harry did survive. Um, he, yes, he had a problem. Uh, so his uh, relative informed me that he was shot in the leg at some point. Um I couldn't find a hospital admission record for him, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. It probably did. Um, but there's no indication of who shot him in the leg. It could have been friendly fire. It could have been an enemy. It's unclear. But it was significantly debilitating for him. Um, and, and he had to be evacuated. And actually, in around January of 44, he was shipped somewhere to be discharged, but he wouldn't ultimately be officially discharged until after the war ended. Um, and that's actually when he was in the hospital recovering in Texas, when, where he met his future wife. Um, ah. So, so yeah. And then he moved back to Reading? Did he move back to Reading? Yes, eventually. Um, it, it was, you know, I think one of the things I noticed for a lot of these men is that some of them came right back. And others kind of took the long way and went about and saw the things they wanted to see. And then usually later on in their life, they would circle back to the old town. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. So presumably, have you, have you watched A Thin Red Line? I have, I have, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you know, you can argue the toss over whether you think it's a good film or not, but in terms of kind of recreating, <laughs> well, I think it is. I think it's a work of genius, yeah. personally, but, 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 in terms of depicting the battle, the, the battle scenes, the fighting on, on Guadalcanal, it's really, really accurate. And it was actually a large part of it was filmed on Guadalcanal itself. Mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough to be out there, and I can tell you, it's it's a it's a 
it's a terrible place in which to fight. Yeah, it's really horrible. I mean, you know, it's so sweaty and humid and difficult, and there's all sorts of bugs and lurgies and horrible things. And oh my goodness, I just don't know how they did it. And that 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 kunai grass is really sharp. So you either yeah. have it, you either have jungle or you have grassy bits, and there's no kind of sort of middle ground. Yeah. Really. And so um, you know, you, and, and obviously what the what the Japanese did is tend to site their stuff on hills where they're overlooking kunai grass rather than jungle because it's easier to see. Um, and it's amazing, you know. It's it's, it's an it's an incredibly atmospheric place. Yeah, um, it really is. But tell me, Autumn, you know, when you okay, so you, I mean, you're you're the classic example of someone who who has got the bug, got interested, wants to find more. I mean, you know, the, the, there's various ways people can kind of find out about their um their, their relatives and about you know people who served in the second world war i mean in the uk you can you know if you've got a if you've got a family member you can't you know people's personnel files aren't open for the general public yet but if you are if you have an uncle or a great uncle or grandfather or whatever you can apply to the um um what do you call it the uh, ministry of defense and you can apply for the file and you know there is no reason why they they won't send it to you so you can do that, and then that gives you your relations service number and what units they were in and when they were. So then you can take that information. Just say, for argument's sake, they're in a in an infantry battalion. Mm-hmm. Um, you could then go, okay, right, he was in you know C Company of the Tenth Durham Light Infantry, and then you can go to um, the National Archives in Kew on the western edge of of, of London, mm-hmm. and you can look up that battalion. Right. Um, um, diary and you can see okay right on that day he was on here and yeah. you know, when he this is where he would have been and you can sort of start to kind of piece it all together and then you can read wider around it right. but I mean in, in, in the US do you have that personnel files or is it a question of going to, to NARA you know the um, um, National Archives. Archives and Records Administration yeah so or, or, or what do you do it's very convoluted um, especially because of COVID um and so basically, I mean, the thing I always start with, um, I use Fold3, which is a website that has a lot of different military records. And from there, you can usually get their draft card. Um, you can get their enlistment record with their service number. Sometimes you can get what's called a burl file, which is a file created by the Veterans Administration when they pass away. Um, if someone has a burl file, it indicates that they were in contact with the VA at some point. Um, you can occasionally find a unit, you know, that way. Very rarely, though. Um, you can find yeah. missing air crew reports that way. All that stuff. That's all great and well and good. But at the end of the day, you have no way of knowing. If you if that's all you have, all you have is a service number and a burl file, you're not going to know what unit the guy served in. Um, so there's, like, a lot of different ways you can go about finding that, and I've had to go through that so much, and I had to learn a lot. Um, uh, sometimes you find it through, you know, sometimes a family member will tell you, or the family member will have a rough idea. Um, but if you don't have any touch, any contact with relatives of the person, you're kind of stuck. You can look on uh, one of the big things that I would use before I... Um, had a contact at the Massachusetts military archives was um, I would look at in the newspapers and I would see if a guy came home on a certain ship. Um, if you look at the papers from the days before that, it'll tell you what ship, if, if you know the name, remember the name of the ship, remember the day that it says he's coming in. You can find sometimes the units that were on the ship when it returned home. 
But a lot of men were discharged from units they never served in, other than, you know, just to be discharged from. So the big thing that you look for, there's like three different ways you can go. The first one is you can try to get his discharge papers. That you can do kind of easily um, if you reach out to the Massachusetts military archives, which lifesaver um because they're open still and they're they're they are actually manned by like i think four people work there and handle all the records and they do it on their own like part-time volunteering it's amazing what they do um the other option you have is the personnel record from the national archives personnel record center but there's a problem with that because in 1973 there was a massive fire um, so most of those records went up in flames. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with us in the First World War, we, uh, but ours got destroyed by the Luftwaffe in <laughs> the 1940s. So, so two-thirds of all the office... No, two-thirds of all the other ranks um, from the First World War were destroyed and a mm. third of the officers. Jeez, yeah, we had, like... It was a fire... Um, I actually read about it. It's, it's really interesting, but um, we lost pretty much all of the army records... It was it was just the army, of course. So it was just the army. It was mostly the army. There were most other branches. Records were fine, um, but it's kind of hard to get a hold of those files because right now the National Archives in St. Louis are closed due to COVID, and they have been mostly closed since the pandemic hit. Which means that my research process has been drawn out quite a lot because I can't get there. Um, And then the other thing that you can do, the third thing, and the thing that I have to do the most often and also happens to be the most complicated, is morning reports, um, which uh, morning reports are just your kind of average changes of the day. You know, anytime a man is promoted or transferred in or out, he shows up on the unit morning reports. So if you have an idea, oh, he served in the 30th Infantry Division, then you could theoretically like me, go through every single unit morning report forever um, and wait and hope beyond all things that your guy didn't happen to be origin- an original member of the unit because if he was, he probably won't show up. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> Autumn, do you ever get... You said uh, earlier on that, you know, sometimes someone in the family has an idea and so you... you or, or, or there's a family story and you follow up and you discover that it's completely wrong. I mean, do you ever get people, you know, my dad was in Guadalcanal and he wasn't. He was in he was in Italy. You, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, you do see that a lot. I I see it a lot in obituaries more than anything else. Um, but I right. I think the funniest thing is like um, people assuming that like, for example, there's one man from um, from town. I'm blanking on exactly which one he is right now, but I know exactly yeah. who he is in my head who, according to his obituary, was a survivor of the Battle of Peleliu, when in reality he was actually severely wounded prior to Peleliu and never even fought at all on Peleliu. Um, right. You know, and so it's like, where did that come from? Well, in that, well, in that sense, we're all survivors of the Battle of Peleliu. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I am. <laughs> so it's, it's, and I mean, it's sometimes too, it's clearly like a thing where the, the person doesn't quite understand what what they're saying like and i think that's one of the sad byproducts of not being able to have easy access to these records because you have to drive to st louis missouri to get some of these things you have to drive to college park maryland to get some of these things so if dad says i served in the 120th infantry regiment of the 30th infantry division well good luck you can find you can find unit histories on the 120th 
But if you don't know what company he served in, then you really don't know what he did. And that's like the hard thing is like, it was very much an individual's war. That's what I'm trying to tell. I'm not telling the story of the 30th Infantry Division, 120th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Battalion's War. I'm telling the story of one man who was in one unit. And I'm doing my best to try to piece together what he did, but I'll never really know. Well, life is going to get easier once all the restrictions lift, don't they? I mean, you know, life is never easy in um, at College Park because they have this absolutely insane um, kind of, uh, um, what do you call it, storage system where, you know, the, the record, what's it called? Oh. I mean, honestly, you, you know, it takes you, every time I go there, I've been there so many times, Every time it takes me at least kind of half a day just to get my head around again how they store all these bits of papers. Yeah. You have to you have to fill out this docket when yes. you have to have the record number and you have to have the stack and you have to have the shelf number. Yeah. And it's just impossible. It's it's really impossible too because they don't have many online finding aids. So no, like, none at all. Like I've been well, nothing worth talking about. Yeah, I've been trying to um put together a whole master list of all the things I need when I do go to the archives. And it's really hard because right now, most of them, I'm going to have to email the people like with a list of like what I think right now is probably about 90 different units whose after action reports I want. And some poor person is going to be like, uh, <laughs> when they see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Well, yeah, but, but, but I mean, what, credit where credit's due. They do have very good, um, um, staff there. Who oh yeah, know their way around. Yeah. The other place is really good. Is the um, is Carlisle Barracks where they have the U.S. Army um, Heritage and Education Center, yeah. and th- th- they are digitizing quite a lot of that now. Yes, that's, that's just a yeah. one. It's so good. But um, oh well, listen, you know, awesome. Good luck with it. And the idea is, it yeah, will this be a book at some point? Yeah, so um, it'll be a book. I'm also going to be starting a podcast to tell some of the stories um, soon um, because. I would like to give people something to look at since it's going to take so long to do all this. But yeah, the end goal is it'll be a book um, and it'll just be called Redding's Boys at this point. Um, and I, yeah, I, I share a lot of my like research updates and all sorts of little things like on my social medias and stuff. Um, and I still do write for the paper. I've just been busy with college, so I haven't been able to do anything new. Um, but, yeah. So if people want a, gl- a glimpse of what you're doing, the Reading Post is the place to go. Yeah, the it? Reading Post. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we, and Reading, by the way, um, British listeners is spelt the same yeah. way as as our yes. Reading here in uh, here in Berkshire. Uh, in Berkshire, so um, uh, so it's the Reading Post, and it's uh, I mean it's just absolutely fascinating. And uh, what what's what's great is you look at the first page that comes up is there's there's. Uh, people in the Battle of the Bulge, there's people in uh, Guadalcanal, there's, it's, you, you're, you're completely, I mean, what James and I always talk about this, how, how global the war yes. really genuinely is. It is genuinely a global event. And it takes people from a small town all over mm-hmm. the world. Simultaneously, they're in all four corners of the world fighting this war. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, it's fascinating stuff this um, autumn. I have to say, it's amazing, amazing what you've done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely incredible. <laughs> I yeah. appreciate it. It's it's fun. A healthy bit of a healthy bit of monomania. Never did anyone any harm, did they? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Oh, well, thank you for coming on and, and, and sharing this with us. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Um, it's it's really a great. Uh, I, I love the podcast. I listen to it all the time. Oh. So. Bless you. Thank oh, you very much. You're saying all the right things. 
<laughs> yeah, and I like that. You saved it till the end as well, so we weren't our heads, heads weren't turned. Um, uh, we've been talking to Autumn Hendrickson, um, whose extraordinary boys from Reading Project is well worth some of your time, some of your internet um, uh, eyeball. Um, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio.